Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's good to be with you again. I should, in full disclosure, let you know that Pastor Matt emailed me earlier this week and said, since there's no communion this morning, I get extra time. (laughs) Uh, But I won't make you suffer through it. I will try to maintain us on a reasonable schedule. We don't have too long of a text this morning in Ruth chapter 4, but there are definitely some things in there that we want to dig in and glean, just as Ruth gleaned in the fields, we want to glean from the scriptures. Now that word glean sometimes is overused, so I say it only because it's in the book itself, but uh, we want to gain, we want to learn, we want to pull from it that which helps us to grow in our faith and our maturity and our knowledge and in our understanding. Ruth chapter 4 Verses 1 to 12 is the redemption story, uh, Boaz redeeming Ruth, and then the blessing coming on the family uh, as they come together in verse 13 through the end of the chapter is basically their marriage and the fruit that God brings from that union. So Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for your word of truth. We thank you for revealing it to us, for making it such an amazing, powerful, glorious message, but able to be understood even by the youngest and most innocent, simplest of souls, uh, even Your power is made known through your spirit. So, Lord, reveal yourself to us continually and help us to grow from your message. Help us to grow in holiness and love for you and love for one another and a love for the world around us. Magnify and exalt and glorify your name in midst of sin of spiritual decay and misery. Make your light to shine in the darkness. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I think technically now college football starts next week, and I am thrilled. I've been watching lately, well, probably too much, um, videos on ESPN of 
teams, um, getting ready for the season, doing what they do to get ready for battle on the gridiron, as it were. And what has been making the rounds lately have been neat little stories of athletes um, getting a surprise. There are only so many scholarships that colleges have available to award to athletes. You know, a full ride, tuition, books, all that kind of stuff. And on occasion, if there are guys who are good but not quite good enough to get a scholarship because in college the NCAA limits the amount of scholarships that can be awarded uh, uh, in your sports program, 85 in the football program, then there are guys who are invited to be called walk-ons or sometimes called preferred walk-ons. Um, and they basically are saying, well, you're really good. We don't have anything for you now, but if, you're com if you come, you know, we'll, we'll, give you, we'll try to give you playing time. We'll try to get you on the field. And maybe somewhere down the road without any you know, promise, you know, maybe something could happen for you. So basically these guys come on without any guarantees, no certainty that they're going to get a scholarship. But what's been making the rounds in these sort of viral videos lately have been these surprise announcements to players that they have been given a scholarship. One of them had to do with a, a, a new coach in Minnesota bringing in a kid from a, a children's hospital in Minnesota whom you know, some team members had visited. Well, they bring this kid in, they let him talk, and they say, you know, which one of these guys on the team has impacted you the most? And uh, it's one of the, the kickers. You know, the kickers are the guys who get no glory. Uh, when things go well, they're not noticed. When things go badly, then they get all the blame. And um, so this kicker had been going in and spending this time with this kid. And so they gave this kid, you know, those little uh, guns that they use, the T-shirt the guns that they stick up and they pull the trigger and it shoots these shirts out into the crowd. Well, kid took it and he shot it towards the kicker and the kicker caught it. And he's like, okay, great. I got a shirt. Woohoo. Uh, but he was happy. You know, he, the kid was having fun, you know, shooting the T-shirt the gun at him. Well, he pulled the shirt open and it said, congratulations, you got a scholarship. And the team was just, you know, they started jumping up and yelling and screaming. Uh, another story had to do with a, a coach. I think it was a coach surprising a student's parent with a letter, he basically interrupted her work in the middle of the workday and showed up and says, you know, showed a letter to her son, you know, you've been granted a scholarship to so-and-so university. And she started screaming hysterically and crying. You'd think, you know, something bad happened, but she was just so excited, so happy that her son was given a scholarship. And for people who economically are in distress, that's a big deal to get a scholarship. And I bring that up because what we see in the book of Ruth this morning is not a scholarship to, you know, a football program, but it's seeing more about, and that's why we did the readings that we did, is seeing how God works extraordinary, works in extraordinary ways through ordinary means. Um, one of my favorite passages in scripture comes from 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I mean, that's the gospel in a nutshell. People look at the cross. They look at the gospel message. They think weakness. They think foolishness. They think really this sad sack, hippie-looking, bearded white guy went and died on a cross and bled, and that's your salvation. That's your Savior. And it's so much more than that. It's so much bigger than that. Jesus is so much more than this sad guy who, you know, couldn't have any fun and had to die. It's the glorious Savior of the universe, the second person of the Trinity who was involved in our creation. 
And that is an amazing story. In the book of Ruth, you see God working simply through what seems a marriage and a birth to maintain the line of Christ, to maintain the line of Judah. You know, Perez there in verse 18 is from the line of Judah. If I remember correctly, he was the son, the offspring of a relationship between Judah and a prostitute. You know, and there's God working in extraordinary ways through ways, you know, doing things that we would never expect. So basically with God, the lesson is expect the unexpected. You know, if that's not an ironic statement, but it's there. Expect the unexpected. Expect God to work in ways that you're not looking for. Expect God to do things that you would not necessarily do yourself. To do things that you would not necessarily decide in your own mind, this is the way it's going to be done. Because a lot of times we make a decision about how things are going to go, and God says, "Uh uh-uh. It's going to be different. I have a different plan. You know, a student goes and he thinks, you know, I've got this plan. I'm going to grow up and I'm going to be this great athlete. I'm going to get this scholarship and I'm going to make millions. And God says, no, maybe not. Maybe something else is going to happen. You know, he'll give blessings along the way according to his plan and purpose. And the reason for that is to keep us humble, first of all, but also to remind us that he is God. He is in control of every single detail and aspect of all of creation. You know, if our very hairs of our heads are numbered, God knows what he's doing. That's what that passage is teaching us. So at the end of the book of Ruth, we have this genealogy. Uh, we have uh, the, the, the announcement of the, of the marriage. We have this genealogy. It's the culmination of the story that began by focusing on the family's single trials, the single family's trials at the beginning where they leave for what they thought were riper fields, better fields, and Moab. Naomi had this terrible emptiness. She said, call me Mara, call me bitter, because I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So she's full of bitterness as she comes back. Now that bitterness is replaced with fullness. That bitterness is replaced with blessing. Because she went, did the thing that she thought she needed to do to keep the family, and ended up being the wrong thing, but God was still faithful. God was still patient. Now, it's not to say we should go out and do stupid things and expect that God will be patient with us and God will bless us, Blessing doesn't come because of foolishness, it comes in spite of it. Peter says, if you're persecuted, don't be persecuted for being an idiot, be persecuted for being faithful. So don't just presume upon the goodness of God, don't presume upon the grace of God in the way that you live your life and the things that you do. Walk in faith, walk in obedience, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk, sit, or stand in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then when his delight is in God's law, he'll be like a tree that is planted by the waterside. He'll flourish and bear fruit and grow fresh and green. That's the life that we need to seek to live by being involved and and focused in the Word of God, studying on a daily basis, meditating on a daily basis, taking time for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has had an old saying that any day that you live without being in the Word of God is a day lost forever. It's a day that you're never going to get back. So be involved in the Word of God. And by provide, providing for their physical needs of, of Naomi and or the girls as they come back, at least Naomi and Ruth, uh, God is providing a greater need. Physically, yes, but there's a greater need that's being fulfilled, a spiritual need that is being met that they don't even know at this point was something that they had to be concerned about. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Micah says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, 
from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And that is the promise that God is bringing to fruition through Ruth and through Boaz, through Obed, through Jesse, through David, through ultimately Jesus Christ. Ruth looks back to the promise of old, but also hints to the future fulfillment of that promise in Christ. Now, Ruth had no idea of God's plans for their marriage and for their child. You know, we all have kids, and in this day of sports, you know, a lot of people want to have kids, and they want to do the Tiger Woods thing and get them out in the golf course when they're three so that they can become these multimillionaire golfers when they get older. What are you having kids for, and what are you training up your kids to do? What is your prayer for your children? To be wealthy in materialism or in in, in physical things or to be wealthy in spirit? To be wealthy in Christ. You know, that's something that we consider. So we're going to look at wealth. We're going to look at fullness this morning, at Ruth's fullness and Naomi's fullness and the Lord's fullness because we see God saving Ruth, uh, 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 the family, from not only physical emptiness, but from eternal emptiness. So he gives them physical blessing, but that physical blessing is, is showing them that there's a greater blessing that is to be sought. There's a greater blessing that we as a church, we, we should never be satisfied with what the world has to offer, brothers and sisters. Don't ever look around. Don't ever be satisfied. We had a conversation last night at family worship about comfort and complacency in those things, and, and, and we have to be on guard against complacency. We have to be on guard against feeling too comfortable at ease with what the world has to offer and always be striving for what God calls us to in Christ, that heavenly upward call. You know, we're in a race, right? Now, if you're running a race, you like to run. I love to run. If you like to race, when do you stop? When you get to the finish line. You, don't stop. you might slow down a little just to kind of catch your breath or to kind of, you, you might settle into a little, you know, they call uh, uh, the runner's groove, you know, where you're, at, you're going and you're, you're all set and you're doing your thing. But you don't stop running that race until you get to the finish line. It may be uncomfortable. It may be hard. It may be difficult. Uh, but you don't stop. You keep going. So as Christians, we have to maintain that pursuit of the goal, that pursuit of the prize at the end of the race. And so while there's breath in our lungs, while there is blood beating through our hearts, we have to continue to fight and strive. So Boaz took Ruth in verse 13, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, uh, he went into her, the Lord gave her conception. He went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. We're reminded here for a couple of reasons to see God's work in their marriage. Uh, both their union and marriage and their sexual union uh, in in raising up a child, uh, producing a child. Uh, Boaz had made a promise to Ruth that he would take her as his wife if the other redeemer would not. Boaz was true to his promise regardless of the cost to posterity, regardless of of the the possible trouble for his own line. Remember, the other redeemer said he wanted to preserve his line, so he didn't want Ruth because he'd have to give things back. Remember his name? Mr. So-and-so. You don't remember his name because, ironically, he wanted to preserve his reputation and identity, and he lost it forever. So Boaz is the one we remember, not Mr. So-and-so. 
So Boaz was true to the Lord, to his promise to Ruth. Uh, his faithfulness to God is shown in his faithfulness to Ruth. If you are faithful to God, if you make a promise to God, you'll be a faithful person in life. You will keep your promises. You will keep your word. And so here we see Boaz and Ruth coming together in the covenant of marriage. And this idea of covenant is really important, especially here in chapter 4. Uh, uh, remember the covenant of grace, the covenant of works which Adam and Eve broke. Who were our first parents is the, ca- the catechism question, Adam and Eve. What was the sin of our first parents? Eating the forbidden fruit. They broke the covenant of works and condemned themselves and their posterity to death because of that original sin. And yet God, in the covenant of grace, promised a redeemer, promised the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And we see that in Christ at the cross. So this idea of covenant, of promise that God makes, uh, he gave to Adam and Eve the covenant of marriage. Uh, From the line of the family of David, his promise is maintained. His ancestors are Ruth and Boaz. From that line comes uh, Jesus Christ. God is at work in marriage. God is at work in their conception of a child. Remember how long Ruth had been in Moab. How long was it? Ten years, I think. It was ten. No children. They were married. No kids. But in all that time when we would have expected a child, there wasn't one born. But as soon as they're married, we see he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. So God is at work. It's not just, you know, magically she became pregnant. It was God gave her conception. God is the active agent in this pregnancy, in this life, in this coming birth. And it's God who is given the credit, uh, a very direct way, a very emphatic way to say God is the source of life. He is faithful. Uh, uh, And it happened one other time in the book of Ruth in chapter 1. It said he visited his people, he gave them food. Now he visits his people once again and gives them a child. And you see how these themes in Ruth are speaking to greater realities. You know, food in the present is okay, but it's food for eternity that we seek. You know, children in the present is great, but our goal is for our children to walk in faith. And our goal is for them to be worshiping with us in glory for eternity. So that's the fullness for Ruth. Now we see a little bit more of an emphasis, interestingly, not so much on Ruth, who is the mother who gives birth, but on Naomi. In verses 14 through 17, we see the emphasis on Naomi. Uh, uh, The child is a blessing for her. Uh, uh, He will grow to be a comfort for her in her old age. Uh, She becomes a grandmother. And we'll get into something about grandparents in just a bit. But again, the story centers on thanksgiving to God, who in His providence and His purpose has provided for the family. And the praise takes form. Basically, the women of the town get together, this choral group, I guess. I don't know if they spontaneously uh, erupted in praise or whatever, but it says, the women said, blessed be the Lord. This is a song of praise. This is a song of thanks, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. She had been empty, but she is now full. Again, uh, verse 21 of chapter 1. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So she was upset, and now she's been blessed with this tremendous blessing, the child born to Ruth, uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law who loves her. But beyond that, it says he will nourish her in her old age. He will nourish her. He will love her. He will care for her. He will bless her, this newborn Naomi, 
in her old age. He is the heir ultimately of Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech's name has been preserved. The prayer is that the Redeemer's name, let's see, uh, without a Redeemer, may his name be renowned in Israel, that his name would be famous or renowned. It's God who deserves praise. It's God who deserves honor. It's God who deserves glory because not only is he the ultimate Redeemer, but he is the Redeemer behind the Redeemer. There is redemption going on. The praise is ultimately to the true Redeemer, to the God of Israel, to the God of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He will be a Redeemer to Naomi. How is he a Redeemer? He takes away the reproach of her childlessness. I wouldn't go so far as to say that identity is found in parents giving birth to kids, but it is a sign of the blessing of God to have children. It's how God raises up families. It's how God raises up families as part of the covenant of grace. It's how God blesses his people. And in Israel, not so much today in our own day and age, I mean, you have people making intentional decisions not to have kids, and that's between them and the Lord. Got no problems with that. But in Israel, to be barren was essentially to be cursed. For many, their whole goal and role in life was to have kids. It's not a bad thing necessarily. If God has gifted you with that desire, run with it. God gives you desire for 10 kids and your spouse agrees, run with it. If not, that's okay. But in Israel, at least, the desire was for them to have children, and to not have children was a sign of trouble, of cursing. And, and people would talk. People would whisper. People would, you know, you know, whisper down the street, you know, can you believe so-and-so hasn't had any kids? Oh, she must be a terrible person. I can't believe, you know, her husband must have done this bad and horrible thing. I can't believe that they're not having kids. Uh, uh, people back then got involved in your business just like people do nowadays. <laughs> so it's no different. Sin is sin. But what we see, again, is God bringing this blessing unexpectedly to the church through a Moabite daughter. And we will discuss that more just briefly. But it is largely the way God grows his church and blesses his church is through families, through the promise of the covenant, through the covenant of marriage. We see blessing spoken to one who is to be a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Uh, we should love our older brothers and sisters, or perhaps fathers and mothers in the faith. You know, this is a day, uh, I think uh, last a week or two ago, Pope Francis had to tell one of his, I don't know if they were Benedictines or some, some order of monks over in Europe to stop supporting euthanasia to stop supporting the assisted suicide of those who are deemed to be terminally ill. Francis had a, apparently a big deal uh, for, for Rome. Uh, we're not a society that values gray hairs as much as we should. And I don't say that because I'm getting gray hairs now. That was just purely coincidental. I just as soon have all black, but gray hairs are a sign of wisdom. 
old age, to reach old age, was a good thing. With the aged is wisdom and understanding with length of days, says Job. Western culture or modern society wants to talk about dying with dignity, uh, not living for the glory of God. I want to dig into all the ethical ramifications of, of that line of thought. But we need to be those who look to provide for the elderly. We need to be those who praise God for their lives and wisdom. We want to be those who give thanks to God for the wisdom of old age. Um, you know, we can learn so much. My parents, my uh, father just turned 81 this year, I think. And I had a brother who sat down with my parents earlier this year and just did like an hour, two hour long video interview asking them about their lives, the way they grew up, the things that they did back then. And I haven't gotten to see it yet, but it shows this desire to appreciate the beauty and the glory of wisdom and to respect the glory of the gray hairs. And so we take a lesson, too, from the life of Naomi. I would say it's probably very likely that when circumstances in life aren't going well the way we define that we think they should be going, that, you know, a way that we would define as being good, we get sad. Maybe we feel sorry for ourselves. Maybe there's a bit of self-pity. I know I've dealt with that to a fair share on my own life. You know, woe is me. I can't believe this is happening. I wanted this to happen, and this isn't happening. God, why? Why? You know, questions. We raise questions to God. And, and Naomi was no different. If life is hard and we feel that even God is against us, there's a possibility that maybe our physical circumstances will never change unless God does some dramatic intervention like it was for Naomi. That still doesn't mean that we shouldn't give praise to God in the midst of hard times. God is always glorious. God is always holy. God is always worthy of praise and thanksgiving and exaltation. We're reading some in the Psalms recently, and I'm trying to teach Charlie, praise the Lord. Hey, Charlie, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, he likes it. So we want to teach our children. We want to teach each other. We want to be encouraged and knowing that it's a good thing to praise God no matter how dark things in life may become. The thing is, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. If there is trouble in our lives, it's our own fault. If there's trouble in our lives, it's our sin. Or maybe it's somebody else's sin which is affecting us. We can never lay blame for our troubles at the feet of God. If anything, we praise God for the fact that we can call ourselves Christians in time of trouble. We give thanks to God that we can call ourselves His children, no matter how dark and how difficult our days on earth may be, because, oh... That scripture's in my head. I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Uh, something about the... I might even have it in my notes for later, so maybe I'm jumping ahead and that's why I'm thinking of it. But uh, the present... Oh, yeah, here it is. <laughs> I got it coming up. Well, let me just go there now. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, whatever your affliction is, it's momentary. This light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your troubles today basically cannot be compared to the glory that is to come. He says in verse 18, As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, 
that's the ESV for temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Things that we see are temporary, but the unseen things are those which are eternal. Elsewhere in Colossians chapter 3, we're told to set our minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Fix your mind on heaven. Fix your mind on eternity. Fix your mind on glory. Sometimes that's easier said than done, especially in the midst of tragedy, especially in the midst of loss, especially in the midst of Charlottesville or its aftermath. And you think, why are people so evil? How can people be so evil? Well, read the Bible. It's in there. It tells you why. It tells you how. And it gives you the solution. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free. There's neither Greek nor Jew, for we are all one. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We fix our minds on heaven. We remember that there is a glory that is to come that we, we frankly can't imagine how amazing it will be. We frankly can't imagine the beauty and the glory of heaven being in the presence of God. We just we have no conception. Maybe on occasion, God gives us a little taste, but we have no conception of what it will be like until we get there, except what Scripture says and how Scripture encourages us. Naomi, it says, too, she has received in Ruth a blessing. Uh, Ruth was to her better than seven sons. Uh, this blessing signifying the greatness uh, of the blessing. Now, why seven sons? Well, seven, uh, I'm, I'm teaching a Bible study right now in Revelation to the inmates, and I have to keep reminding them the significance of the numbers. Uh, certain numbers are used for symbolic purposes. Seven is one of those numbers, a sign of completeness or completion, a sign of perfection, a sign of fullness. Seven sons essentially would guarantee an inheritance in the land for the family. Now, why is Ruth better than seven sons? Because she has attained for the family an inheritance better than anything in Israel, any, better than any Middle Eastern real estate. This is heaven. This is glory. This is being in the presence of God. That's why she's better to her than seven sons. Not that girls are better than boys or boys are better than girls or anything like that. You know, there is equality in God's eyes. But because of the inheritance that is promised, the inheritance that is gained, which is heaven. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse. Not nurse in the modern sense of the RN at the hospital, but nurse in the sense of a grandmother bonding with and caring for her grandson. It's often the case in families that grandparents have a special fondness for their grandchildren. And I've been told the reason for that is because when the grandparents get sick of their grandchildren, they hand them back. Here you go. You know, I'll take them back next time when, when things are fresh and things are new and exciting. And they, you know, um, it's more than that. For Naomi, it's not just that she can be a nurse and bond with her grandson, but basically, in her life, the void that existed for so long is gone. That hole that had been there. Now, if she had a relationship with the Lord, you have fullness. But God condescends to give us extra blessings. God condescends to give us extra encouragement. 
If we only have him, we have enough. But in his grace, he knows that in our weakness, we struggle. In our weakness, we suffer. So he gives us extra blessings as we need them to sustain us, to encourage us, to show us his goodness. And that's what God is doing to Naomi, is showing her his goodness by filling that hole, that childlessness in her own life. How many years of her life has she lived now? Finally, she has a grandson to gall her very own, uh, to bounce on her knees. And it's interesting, too. It says explicitly, a son has been born to whom? Naomi. So that's a pretty amazing statement on behalf of this woman who had been empty but now is full. He's called Obed, or a servant. Um, They named him Obed. The women of the neighborhood gave him a name. You know, that's one of those old traditions I think we can do without. I'm happy to name my own children. Or my wife and I were happy to name our own kids, not, you know, having neighbors out there, you know, call them, you know, terror or rock or goober or something like that. I don't know. They named him servant. Now, he's a servant to the family, sure, but it's also a name with a desire of showing that this child is going to be a servant of God. This child is destined to be a servant of God and to be used of God for the glory of his name. And then finally, in verses 18 to 22, we speak of the Lord's fullness. The fullness that God has shown through successions of covenant generations. You know, oftentimes we think of genealogies as as pointless or boring. We look at all these names, and after a while, you're kind of maybe nodding off, dozing, and, you know, what? I'm, I'm here, I'm here. You know, per, the, the names are, are, are interesting. I don't want to get into all the technical details. Um, uh, I did do some a some, uh, little bit of study, but I won't even get into the, some of the technical details that I saw. Basically, what's interesting, you've got, essentially, you've got ten names. You have five names. The first five names generally uh, were people who all lived within 450 years of each other. The second five names were all essentially those who lived within 450 years of each other and between the two fives. But the essential names that we're focusing on, in spite of the numerology or in spite of how it's put together, is David and Boaz. Those are the names that we're really focused on here in this genealogy. Perez, of course, Perez, Father Hezron, Perez coming from Judah, so keeping the focus. Judah isn't mentioned for some reason, but we started with Perez. Perez all the way to David. Um, not a complete genealogy, again, but whatever names left out, whatever the, the years, whatever the numbers, it's pointing us not just to David, but ultimately to Christ, to the ultimate Redeemer. Again, this whole idea of kinsman, Redeemer, and Ruth is really important for the story, but what is a kinsman with Redeemer without the capital R, Redeemer? You know, that's the one who gave us this blessing. That's the one who gave the church this glory. Um, and then there's something to be said, too, about the historical continuity of God's purposes in our lives. We are proof here today in 2017 at Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church? Hey, Redeemer. We are proof of God's covenant faithfulness. We are proof of God's promise to Abraham. However many thousands and thousands of years ago, We are proof of God's promise to Abraham to create descendants greater than the sand on the seashore or the stars in the sky. The same God who made that promise to Abraham to say, I am your God and you are my people, is the same God who is our God, who calls us 
his God, and we are his people. Or says to us, he is our God. We're not individual believers living in time and space on our own, but we're linked covenantally with believers past, believers present, and we are linked with believers in the future. We are linked with believers in glory. Revelation chapter 5 speaks of those who have gone and been martyred. They said, Lord, when are you going to return? God says, when the rest of those who are to be killed have come to their fullness in number. So there's connection even with the saints who have gone before who have been martyred in that way. A lot of times modern evangelicalism talks about this idea of a personal savior. You know, have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior or is Jesus your personal savior? And that's an okay question to ask, but it's more than being a personal savior. Personal savior is actually not a term found in the scriptures. You see covenant, you see redeemer, you see church, you see body of Christ. So it's not just that he saves each of us individually, which he does, but he saves each one of us corporately as a body to come together under the headship of Christ. So we are all connected. We are all part of the church, whether Baptists or Presbyterians or Lutherans or Charismatics, whatever. If we are in Christ, we are united together as one body. And we have to remember that. Because so much of the modern church is caught up in this democratic idea of thinking, well, I'm fine by myself. Leave me alone, let me exercise my personal rights, and everything's going to be okay. People treat church that way. I'll go as long as they leave me alone. Once they start bothering me, I'm going to go somewhere else. Or they just window shop, hopping from church to church, not taking time to focus and settle and make relationships. Scary word, relationships. But that's who we are in Christ. We are brothers and sisters. We relate to one another. We love one another. We serve one another. We encourage one another. And so Ruth provides for us, not simply as it ends, an ancestry for King David, but shows us that history is important. For Israel, history and life were bound up with their king. King David was a great guy, but he was a guy who screwed up. He was not perfect. David showed the need for a greater king who was to come. The church waited for that king. The church saw that king finally in Jesus even descended from a prostitute, even descended from a Moabitess. And I'll close with this idea of, of being raised in the church. There is a particular blessing for those who are raised in the church. Children, if you're raised in the church, you've been given a great blessing, a tremendous blessing to learn, to grow, to be encouraged. Sometimes things are boring. Sometimes a sermon takes too long. So that's for the adults too, so don't think you kids are alone in that. Prayer takes too long. You know, there is life. There is joy. There is gladness. There is strength. There is encouragement in the church. There is blessing to be exposed to the grace and the goodness of God all of your life. But it's also something that should fill you with a sense of fear. When I say fear, I'm not saying be afraid that God is going to strike you with lightning. I'm saying reverence, awe, praising God who is holy and understanding that in your sin you have offended a holy God, but in His grace He forgives. In His grace He changes you. 
He brings you to repentance. He leads you out of the dungeon pit, out of the mire from Psalm 40. Um, Because we have a sense of reverence, have a sense of fear, because we who have tasted God's goodness will be held accountable with a stricter judgment if we deny that goodness. One of the laments of society, evangelicalism, is that kids are getting growing older and they're leaving their homes and they're going off to college or jobs and they're not joining a church. They're going and doing other things. And I think it's probably every faithful parent's greatest fear is that the kid's going to leave and not find a church, not find a, a body to worship and a pastor and a, and, and a congregation to settle in with and learn from and grow. It's one of the reasons Paul says we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, as Christians, we're to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. Hebrews says our God is a consuming fire. God is good, but he's also severe. God is good, but he's going to hold us to account. And in the church, you've experienced great blessing in being exposed to communion, to be exposed to baptism, to the preaching of the word, to prayer, to song, to catechisms. But it's a challenge to keep the blessing fresh. It's a challenge to keep the blessing vibrant. It's a challenge sometimes. Sometimes we we do get caught up in routines. You know, you get up, you do your thing, you go go home, you you get up, you get ready, you go to church, you go home. Uh, You know, it's a challenge for us. It really is. And so we have to be aware of that. We have to fight against the tendency to just let things become plain and boring. And and meditate daily on God's goodness. And meditate on His holiness. Meditate on who He is on what he's done for us. Meditate on the cross. You ever get a chance, read uh, Lee Strobel's, uh, is it the, the, case, the Case for Christ? Well, that's a movie that's coming up. There's something he did on the cross, The Case for Easter. Read The Case for Easter. Regardless of what you think of his apologetics or his theology, it's a gripping read as you get a chance to do it. And it'll refresh you with a sense of awe and gratitude for God. And, and that's the thing as Christians, we always have to be seeking refreshment. We always have to be seeking to grow. If you're not growing, you're dying. So be growing. Be in the Word. Be studying. Be encouraged in your faith. Don't just be a store mannequin sitting in the pew filling up space, but remember that you're a living being created in God's image to worship Him and to enjoy Him forever. That's the answer to the first catechism question. What is man's chief end? to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So as Christians, we're called to glorify God and to enjoy Him. May that be your experience by His grace. May you be encouraged in glorifying Him, encouraged in enjoying Him more than anything the world has to offer. Enjoy the blessings that God has to give. Amen? Let's pray. We thank you, God, for your love. We thank you for your goodness and grace. We thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy your blessing. We can enjoy your presence. We can enjoy your favor and your faithfulness and your goodness. We thank you most of all for Jesus, for our redemption in him through his sacrifice on the cross, that because of him, we are called sons and daughters of the living God. Because of Jesus, we can enjoy a relationship with you where we call you Father. We thank you for that. May you encourage us in our walk with you. Remind us 
to praise you, Lord God, both now and forever. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.